Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and subbing in yet again for Emma Ashford while she's out on maternity leave is John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Hello, John. Hello, Trevor. Those of you listening to this podcast have probably noticed that there's been a lot of debate about the future of American grand strategy and foreign policy over the past few years. Certainly, Donald Trump gets some of the credit for this. But even before Trump, falling public support for the endless wars in the Middle East, the rise of China, Russian aggression, continued NATO enlargement, just to name a few issues, had convinced many foreign policy observers that the United States had reached the point where change was both inevitable and necessary. Over the same period, calls for greater restraint in American foreign policy appear to have gained much more traction. As Patrick Stewart recently wrote on the Consul on Foreign Relations blog, restraint is having its moment. The timing, therefore, is auspicious in many respects to welcome a new player to the Washington think tank community, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, with funding from George Soros and Charles Koch, describes itself as an action-oriented think tank that will lay the foundation for a new foreign policy centered on diplomatic engagement and military restraint. And here to tell us more about the Quincy Institute and the role it will play in the foreign policy debate is Trita Parsi, one of its co-founders and its executive vice president. Welcome, Trita. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, So let's just start with some organizational history. Where did this idea come from and how did you guys get this started? It's sort of a big deal to start a think tank. It is. And, you know, the first question people ask is like, what, DC doesn't have enough think tanks? (laughs) Um, And and that was a hurdle that we had to overcome. But I think um, the personal stories of several of the individuals who were there at the very outset uh, differ a bit, but we all ended up coming to the same point. Um, In my specific case, it was having worked uh, for more than a decade, uh, leading the National Iran American Council and hoping to avoid a war between the United States and Iran and securing a nuclear deal. And I left um, right after the deal, I felt that the likelihood that the deal would survive, I thought was going to be quite slim. Because, and that was pre-Trump, you know, it didn't matter because it was very clear the deal essentially increased America's contradictions in its foreign policy in the region. We did a constructive thing on Iran, but then we doubled down on problematic elements with our relationship with Saudi Arabia and Israel, saying that now we're gonna compensate the Saudis for having struck a nuclear deal, which I found was uh, frankly an offensive way of expressing it because this deal lied squarely in the interest, national interest of the United States and we don't have to compensate anyone. Um, for pursuing it. But I felt that that contradiction, the weight of that would cause the collapse of the deal. But then when I thought about it further, it also came to my realization, at least, that it was not just a contradiction of America's foreign policy in the region, it was a contradiction of America's grand strategy. Our belief that we have to dominate every region of the world militarily, that we need to view all uh, non-pliant, non-democracies as threats per se, And that in that context, a multilateral deal that evaded the war, that had the backing of the entire Security Council was a contradiction of our grand strategy, but spending another 50 years in Afghanistan with no clear mission would not be a contradiction of our grand strategy. And then seeing the deal collapse within two years got me 
uh, pretty down. And I felt like I don't have the energy to fight another decade or so for what I thought was a great achievement and then see it collapse within two years because it exists in a strategic vacuum. It exists within a context that doesn't allow for positive developments like that to be enduring. And if there's any fight that I would have the energy to do would be to actually fix our grand strategy and our broader approach to the world uh, in a way so that all of our other achievements actually could be durable. That's a pretty interesting way of putting it, especially for two policy wonks at an existing think tank that work on foreign policy. Certainly one of the challenges has been to advocate for sensible policies in the narrow sense within an overall grand strategy that we uh, are very critical of. That said, starting a new think tank is a pretty ambitious endeavor. So next question is sort of <laughs> why and how do you plan to implement? Well, uh, the why is also because we sense that, you know, uh, liberal hegemony literally has a hegemonic position in, the, in Washington, D.C. There are a few aus outposts, you know, the heroes at Cato that I'm sitting with right now that have been fighting this good fight for quite some time. But in order for being able to get a shift, there needs to be a critical mass of energy and a critical mass that is actually channeling not just elements from one specific political orientation, but something that manages to bring together several different um, uh, political strains together on this. Because in our view, you know, this approach, restraint, or as we call it, responsible statecraft, should not be left or right. In order for it to actually be able to become the foundation of foreign policy, it really needs to be neither um, or be both. Um, and, and for that, we felt that it would there was an opportunity to do something because one thing that I noticed over the course of working in the circle of organizations, and Cato was there as well, that was being uh, organized and coordinated by the Plowshares Fund. At most, I think we were like 85 organizations or so. It was interesting to see that over the course of those years, as we were fighting to be able to get a nuclear deal and avoid war, there was a really nice convergence of perspectives between these different organizations on matters that were on principle. It were no longer just about the Iran deal in the sense that earlier on, the excitement that existed in certain quarters about the use of sanctions by year three or five had really changed. And today you hear a lot of progressives say that sanctions are a bad thing. Whereas a decade ago, all Democrats, more or less, as well as many Republicans, of course, felt that sanctions was an alternative to war. And I, I'm just fascinated to see how that has changed. And that was just one example. And I saw that convergence and I felt like, you know, if this was a bit better coordinated, if we took advantage of this, this actually would naturally lead a lot of these folks that otherwise perhaps would not identify with restraint towards that because it's actually a slow but systematic rejection of many of the elements of liberal hegemony. Yeah, I mean, the, as a signal of the bipartisan nature of many of the policy points that uh, could be could fit within a grand strategy of restraint, I was uh, heartened to see Ilan Omar's uh, op-ed uh, criticizing sanctions as a workable policy tool with a lot of utility. It's it's sort of a dogma here in D.C., uh, but you know certain 
people have been saying for a long time it doesn't it doesn't really work and yet you know that's a that's on the far left wing of the democratic party and uh yeah there's a lot of bipartisan uh potential i think for restraint but you did mention the curious and peculiar um ideological bent or or the sharing of uh, uh founders essentially uh, the, the the major funders of of Quincy are uh, both on the left and the right. Talk about how that will color the Institute and sort of guide its future. Well, as I said, we believe that uh, in order to be able to have this paradigm shift and, and, and make sure that there's a completely different foundation for our foreign policy, no one political side alone can make that happen. We have to unite uh, political forces on both sides because at the end of the day, political forces on both sides are deeply bought into liberal hegemony. It's a bipartisan, transpartisan consensus. And um, in order to do this, we felt that it needed to be something that is transpartisan, something that both the left and the right feels equally comfortable with. And the best way of ensuring that is to make sure that from the very outset, we have funding from both sides. And even though, uh, of course, CKI and OSF have gotten a lot of attention for this, but they were there together with many other funders from both the left and right. It was not them alone, but uh, it was also not the first time that they had collaborated because they collaborated on criminal justice reform. They collaborated on ending the war in Yemen. It was, however, the first time that they coordinated and became founding funders of a new entity. That had not been done before. And we felt that that was an important achievement to be able to signal very clearly we have reached a point in which folks that otherwise have been quite generous in supporting many of the existing think tanks that do not question the first principles of American foreign policy, they have reached a point in which they want to fund something that does question it. And that, that is a signal that we have reached a turning point. This is no longer uh, a view that easily can be dismissed by the existing think tanks. They have to engage it. There's going to have to be a debate. They may have thought that they could avoid that debate for years. We have now reached a point it's very clear that debate needs to be had. Yeah, that's okay. Good pivot to another question. And at a recent event uh, where one of your co-founders, Stephen Wertheim, was, was speaking, I, I was a little bit shocked, although I should know a lot better by this point, at the lack of knowledge about restraint in foreign policy and what it might mean, uh, the people in the room had, and this group of people who shall remain unnamed, um, involved or included, you know, people with multiple decades of experience in U.S. foreign policy who I assume read foreign affairs and foreign policy and the usual suspects, and their, their utter lack of sort of familiarity with some of the main arguments or tenets of restraint was was shocking to me, even though, like I said, I, I've been out and about enough, I should know better. So what I want to ask you is, um, the full name is the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We argue about whether the word restraint should get dropped on a daily basis around here. <laughs> I'm very and, much on the anti side of that. Yeah, I hate that word. Getting rid of it. It's a terrible word because it just sounds like isolationism to people. <laughs> um, but but to, so, so John, you're in favor of dropping it or not? I'm in favor of keeping restraint. I think okay. it, there's something valuable in there and the lack of an alternative name and people just get bogged down in labels so much that it's not very... But Quincy Institute has another label, maybe, uh, responsible statecraft. So so tell us, I mean, you, you guys are, in our word, restrainers, but what do you mean when you say responsible statecraft? How, how are you going to position yourself relative yeah. to everyone else around here? 
So uh, by using the word responsible statecraft is not necessarily because we want to deviate from restraint or, or to do something different. It is partly because of a sense that the word restraint very much signals the military side of American foreign policy. And part of the reason why, part of the reason, I know some people would actually call you an isolationist knowing very well that that's not what restrainers are, but nevertheless would choose to use that type of a terminology to end the debate. But I think part of the reason why uh, people can become susceptible to believing that that is an isolationist orientation is because it doesn't make, the name itself does not make a differentiation between what the orientation is on diplomacy and what it is on military use absolutely restrained when it comes to military use. But we are very clear, we want to see a tremendous amount of American diplomatic engagement, not a withdrawal from the world in any way, shape or form, trade. Um, and we still very strongly believe that the United States uh, can play and should play a strong leadership role in the world. But we do believe that we have to decouple the idea of American leadership with the idea of American military hegemony. Those two don't go hand in hand. They should not go hand in hand, not depending on each other. In fact, in the last decade or two, I think it's quite clear that American military hegemony and um, militarism has actually come at the expense of American leadership. That sounds about right. It's what a lot of people don't appreciate about restraint. It's that, uh, so yes, calling for restraint means calling for a massive pairing back of our military activism. And we are uh, more militarily active than any other country. But during that transition, which will take quite a while if it, if it comes to pass, and certainly under a restraint grant strategy, the, real, the first foot forward for America and our engagement in the world is going to be diplomacy and statecraft. And that's a cheaper way of doing things. That's pr usually a more precise way of doing things. Um, but it's not the military way, but it's so central to the, the idea behind the grand strategy that uh, it's a sensible and, and And I've talking to a lot of folks that either don't know enough about it or are just genuinely curious. It's become very clear to many of us that it's very difficult for a lot of people imagining American leadership without American militarism that these two things have become so intertwined in our understanding of our role and our understanding of what it means to be a leader, that that in of itself is really dangerous and scary in my view, because if we think that we need to have that type of a military dominance in order to be able to lead, then we have to be honest with ourselves, then we're not leading, we're bullying, we're dominating. And that's a completely different thing. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I think back to uh, you know Trump's, you know, missile strike on Syria. Oh, this is the first time he became president. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what the, you know, is that really now the definition of the president has to become a murderer before he's the president? I'm like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Um, and, but, but, you know, another thing that, that goes hand in hand or hand in glove with the military first approach has been just this habit of mind, this hubris that the United States gets to, should, have a say or control events all, all around the world that actually don't have really very much. We might have a preference, but I mean, I think that's all you could call it, a preference for certain outcomes. We don't have a deep national security need. And yet we've gotten so used to the ability to affect events all over the world that people look at you funny if you suggest you should stop doing it. And so, yeah. you know, as a restrainer, I feel like I'm pushing a, a very heavy thing up a very steep hill when you try to say, 
to anyone in DC, maybe we should just consider stopping that. And they look at you like you have three heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a very can-do spirit in the policy world. If you're not advocating for engagement of some kind, you're you're right. not being helpful. And, and then the argument, if you want to argue for diplomacy, they're going to be, yeah, sure, but show me how you get everything I want, but only with diplomacy. Yeah. And the argument is, if you don't militarize diplomacy, you're never going to be able to coerce and bully. And you're like, yeah, that's good. And they're like, but what do you mean? I want to do all these things. And you just, you can't do all those things without which, which a military. Which really goes to uh, a deeper understanding then of, okay, what is our place and our role in the world? And people readjusting to the fact that the unipolar moment has long passed. It passed faster than it should because of our overextension and overmilitarization. We need to have a foreign policy that starts adjusting and that starts to manage how a multipolar world will look and make sure that it's a safe and secure world for us and others. And uh, the longer we wait with that conversation, the worse the starting point of that journey is gonna be. So I see it as actually a national security threat that we're not dealing with this much, much sooner. Yeah, so that prompts a question that John and, and Chris Preble and I have been talking about recently, which is, You know, a lot of the sort of restraint paradigm, I think, depends on a particular reading of world order and, you know, bipolarity, multipolarity, and and their consequences of different forms of world order and and threat and all that. Where do you see things heading? You you know, so you've just tipped your your hand. You you think we're in a more multipolar world now. And how do you see the future? I mean, how how much do you think where the Quincy Institute is, is trying to get us to go is based on your read of where the world is going? The world is already there in my view. Uh, It's been multipolar um, already for some time and we're in those moments in which every time there's a new sign as that is the reality that we have this kind of shock uh, uh, reaction to it. But um, when it comes to not necessarily just the distribution of power, but the distribution of commitment, it's very, very clear. Um, I was just in a panel the other day and Someone was mentioning that, you know, the protests in in Iraq right now that have a a clear anti-Iranian element to it, same thing in in Lebanon, that's a great development, an invitation for us to be able to go in there and see what we can do and push out the Iranians. And and my response was, look, the the protesters have legitimate grievances, et cetera, but if you're gonna try to turn this into a US-Iran thing, the US will always lose for a very simple reason. Iraq will never, be as important to the U.S. as it is to Iran. So the U.S. can be a superpower, but Iran is a regional power and is always going to be the neighbor of Iraq. And as a result, we cannot muster that commitment, nor should we, because we have global responsibilities or or, or, or interest. And uh, this is just uh, an obsession with the Middle East that has gone beyond unhealthy at this point. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the spheres of influence thing is another kind of common argument. You get a lot of pushback there that, oh, you, you're you for restraint, so you must be okay with spheres of influence. And I think the point that you're making is, guys, there are all already spheres of influence. Don't kid yourself. Yeah, I mean, if people want to argue against uh, the laws of geopolitics, they can be happy to do so, but uh, I'll prefer to accept them and, and, and manage them. Let me challenge you on that then, because... Yeah. So one way to talk about why the United States has such a hyperactivist military policy or foreign policy is because it has disproportionate power. So the realists would say, you know, power held tends to be power wielded. How do you get the most powerful country in the world 
and more specifically the people carrying out that foreign policy to restrain themselves, to not exercise power that they have at their disposal. Would that go against geopolitics or perhaps human nature? It would go against the nature of power. Right. Power is cyclical. And no, doesn't matter how powerful the United States is, it cannot prevent the rise of other states. And as a result, it's not just a moment that is important. It's you know looking into the future and making sure that our behavior and our conduct right now does not uh, put us in a detrimental position in the future by either weakening ourselves the way that we have by these unnecessary wars in Iraq and elsewhere, um, or to, uh, in other ways, also trying to forcibly keep other countries down, which then actually does lead to them being incentivized to undermine the U.S. in every turn uh, and, and way that they can find, which then also ends up becoming very costly. But domestically, there's a huge professional community, for one, that needs to be persuaded of something other than American indispensability. You know, I think I'm, I'm watching closely uh, State Department employees and executive branch officials who are testifying uh, about Trump's um, skullduggery over Ukraine. And, you know, they are very hardworking, earnest diplomats, civil servants, but they believe that it's fundamental to U.S. interests in the world to send lethal aid to Ukraine, some of them at least. Um, and so, you know, especially at this time, we're having this difficult, weird discussion about, you know, an administration in the White House who's kind of at war with its own bureaucracy and constantly denigrates civil service uh, compared to a responsible statecraft type think tank that argues for diplomacy, it's important to sort of shore up our diplomatic manpower and muscle. But you're you're doing it, you're, you're arguing for a vision of the US role in the world that doesn't flex well with, with that community. Um, I think your point is quite well taken, John, but I would, challenge it a little bit and say, I've not been left with the impression that that is the consensus is any way, shape or form. On the contrary, we've been contacted by folks inside the bureaucracies. I won't go into greater detail and, and been asked to brief them, et cetera. And it's been very clear to me that many of them actually are quite clear eyed that the broader direction that we're going is, is not helpful, but they need stronger and more visible outside expert validation for them to internally be able to challenge these things and not risk their lives and their livelihood and their pension. It's very difficult for them to drive it alone inside and they need more entities. I know Cato has been doing an amazing job for the last couple of decades on this front, but they need more and more consistently and from many different political directions, have that type of intellectual and expert val val validation to be able to push their ideas. If they don't see it, if they don't see enough of it, they're just gonna bow their heads and do their jobs and not risk their livelihood and their mortgage and their pension, even though internally they have huge qualms about it. So this is about reaching a critical point, a critical mass in which suddenly the incentive structure for those inside who all along have been skeptical, feel like, okay, now it's the moment to actually be able to step forward. I think there's reasons to believe that many of these signs that we're seeing can lead us to that critical mass. And part of it is not just because, you know, Quincy, I mean, Quincy is a manifestation of it. It's not because of Quincy. Um, but other things are the fact that now you do have a rising 
uh, political strain within the Democratic Party, the progressives, who are becoming increasingly dominant, but they by and large lack a foreign policy platform. And they know it, they talk openly about it, they're in search of it. And if they can adopt some variation of restraint, they can sprinkle their own values and other things that are important for them onto it, then you would have a, a very interesting situation because then you would have a very strong element inside the Democratic Party, as well as an element within the Republican Party that would from both sides challenge the status quo and the reigning paradigm. We have not had that for the last 25 years. All right, so perfect segue. What are your priorities at Quincy then for the next year or so as you guys get started up? And you officially open your doors when? Soon. December 4th is we'll, when we will have uh, an event. Um, free drinks? Is that Free drinks. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, uh, but you have to drink with restraint. <laughs> um, and um, we will roll out a little bit more of this in the next week or two. Um, and from there on, we will be fully launched. Some people think we've already launched because um, there was a lot of attention given soft to... Launch. Yeah, we had a soft launch soft that ended launch. up becoming a little bit bigger than we expected. <laughs> um, but that was good. And uh, from there on, we have four programs that we're starting off with. I mean, it is ambitious enough, as you all have pointed out, to start a new think tank. So we need to start with four areas where we will try to do um, uh, a good job and from there on, hopefully be able to expand, collaborate with folks on the right and the left and elsewhere. Um, the first two ones are geographic. One is on um, uh, East Asia because of the importance of the U.S.'s relationship with China as well as North Korea and how that will define so many different things in this century. The other one, of course, is the Middle East because that's where we almost always seem to find a new group that we owe to defend and we are committed to for some reason without any treaty or any congressional authority. And the risk of war there is always uh, uh, around the corner, unfortunately. And then we have two um, functional areas. One is on uh, ending the endless wars, which is a little bit more of the grand strategy approach to it. And the last one is a democratizing foreign policy that has several different elements to it. Everything from strengthening the war powers or you know recommitting to the war powers in Congress to uh, looking at how foreign funding uh, inside the Beltway is negatively affecting and distorting a lot of these conversations and debates. Uh, but also to try to make sure that the foreign policy of the United States ceases to be this elite activity. Uh, it is an elite activity, and as a result, it is increasingly detached. You've done a lot of work on the polling on this, uh, detached from where the American public actually is. And we also want to make sure that it is a little bit more representative of the demographics uh, of the American public. Uh, African-Americans and uh, Latinos tend to be the majority of the enlisted soldiers. They're bearing the disproportionate uh, cost of the endless wars, but their voices, particularly in the foreign policy conversation, is almost non-existent. And we want to see what we can do to help change that. That's fantastic. So you, you guys call yourself an action-oriented think tank, which sounds way awesome. What the <laughs> heck does that mean? Do, does that mean you're do, you, like, I don't put on capes at lunch or what? Do you, what that's, like we write reports and tweet a lot. What are you yeah. guys going to do? Um, I think many, but not all, uh, think tanks traditionally have been operating in ways that we are trying to avoid. One is amongst many of the think tanks, uh, there seems to be um, 
a sentiment that they want to stay clear of the advocacy organizations that you know they don't want to be associated with it because god forbid if you are associated with you know some of these advocacy organizations uh that could negatively affect your scholarship uh or or your the perception of you as a scholar whereas you know being funded by the UAE and Saudi Arabia that apparently is not a problem um we want to work hand in glove with advocacy organizations in order to be able to better serve what they're doing uh provide intellectual validation and expert products that could help them in their work as they're pushing uh they're going to be doing advocacy we're not going to be in in the in the lobbying sphere whatsoever but we want to be able to provide them with that and this is also something that came out of the experience with the Iran deal in in the sense that we worked with a lot of folks that were in the traditional think tanks and many of them were fantastic but um we also felt that sometimes when the political winds were changing so the day and we wanted to have a dedicated think tank that actually would really work with some of these advocacy organizations on the left and the right that have been on the forefront of pushing against uh endless war and militarism in our foreign policy on Capitol Hill and elsewhere and be there to be able to on the one hand provide them with what they need but also try to make sure that we provide a conceptual umbrella for all of the work that they're doing so it ends be ends up not being you know once yemen is done then you have to fight the next fire and the next fire but actually also simultaneously push for something that doesn't just put us out the fires but identifies and pins down the arsonist yeah we're going to be watching you closely because um you know uh, due to i guess historical you know whatever path dependency etc cetera, etc cetera. you know we here at Cato reach out to both sides as well but not always with equal success i would say or or not consistent success i would say to in all directions especially you know issue by issue i'm going to be really interested to see how well the bipartisan sort of strategy works because i think it can be difficult to stay bipartisan in this town um if, if one side sees you friendly with the other side sometimes that can sort of snowball uh, i really think it is a really important thing to be bipartisan or nonpartisan if you will about these issues uh because i think they're just too important to to play politics with um but it's not easy in this town and i think you know the idea that it's just going to be a matter of finding common ground it, it's it's tough it's yeah, we've tried it, we've also, tried a lot it is also true that there are portions of each party uh in america that are converging on sort of restraint policy areas a reluctance to get into involved militarily exists both on the left and the right and so if you remain consistent in your output as quincy or cato um you will occasionally be useful and available to both sides yeah, yeah. you you're quite right it's going to be tricky um you know overall changing the foundation of our foreign policy is not going to be easy <laughs> sounds like a big job <laughs> um and um but frankly i don't see any other way of doing it if we can't get the two sides that already tend to dive, converge towards the same point to also increase their collaboration and there's examples in which they have i mean the yemen vote was very clearly um uh, a transpartisan collaboration same thing with uh what um uh congressman rokana and and um uh, gets uh, uh is doing in the war powers caucus so same thing in 2013 when syria was going to come up exactly, for a vote it's kind of an uprising on both yeah. sides so it, it has happened before but as we have kind of 
pointed out in this conversation, it has tended to be quite episodic. And our hope is that through Quincy and through our collaboration with others, perhaps we can make sure that this is again, a little bit more institutionalized. That sounds great. All right, so I'm gonna end with, with sort of put your forecaster hat on a, a little bit. Um, you know, when you look out and, and not, not to spoil any emerging friendships that you guys are building, but when you look out at the democratic field of candidates, you look at Trump, I mean, I don't know, it seems to me like a 50-50 jump ball who ends up in the White House after 2020, but what do you sort of realistically sort of gauge the prospects for restraint to be over the next four years or so? I think the next couple of months is going to be really critical because if the primaries on the Democratic side uh, start to have a bit more or much more foreign policy conversation, and if you have people like Elizabeth Warren coming out there and saying, we ought to leave the Middle East, and if you have more of these voices coming out there, uh, I'm hoping that that will set the stage. Uh, and you know, these things, these paradigm shifts are not gonna happen quickly. It's gonna take you know, step by step. Uh, and I think these debates can be extremely helpful because it will reflect the, the majority opinion of a lot of the Democrats. Uh, if statements of that kind and, and reasoning around that uh, is put forward. And we saw what happened with, when uh, Tim Ryan um, went the other direction <laughs> and got slapped down quite uh, effectively. Um, so I, I do think that it's become much more complicated with the very problematic and reckless manner that Trump has done several things. I mean, the idea of ending endless war has gotten a negative connotation now because he has co-opted it and then he's look, you know, and people are associating that with what's happening in Syria where there's actually not a withdrawal to begin with. I mean, he's managed to get the worst of both worlds. He's not withdrawing. In fact, he is staying even further and, um, and uh, at the same time taking the heat for a withdrawal that never actually is taking place. It's, it's absolutely horrific in that sense and that's going to make it tricky. But I think uh, we have an opportunity to make sure that these debates pushes the conversation forward and, and redefines what is politically viable and what is not politically viable. Fantastic. Great place to end it. Um, Trita, thanks so much for joining Thank us Thank you today. so much for having me. Good luck, comrade. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> thanks to our producers, Cecil Sherman and Luis Saumada Abrio, and to everyone for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>